morning. We come to our concluding passage in the book of First Peter. And Peter has been focused in helping his audience in Asia Minor just wade through the troubled waters of suffering. And he's been exhorting him, exhorting them throughout this letter. In fact, in our passage today, he gives the main reason of his letter. In verse 12, we read, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter wrote this letter and handed it over to a brother called Silvanus, who was the carrier of this letter, it is believed, to these different churches. And Peter says, all that he has written to them is the grace of God, the true grace of God. And so he says, stand firm. Stand firm in this true grace of God. Don't give up in your suffering. When people ridicule you for your faith, don't fall into sin. When you are oppressed because you are a believer, don't retaliate. But guard your conduct. Pursue peace with others. When you are persecuted, when you are pushed to the limit, don't abandon your relationship with your brothers and sisters in the church. But rather, share genuine love with them. Most importantly, the way that Peter has been exhorting this, these churches is to look at Christ. They were called to look at the example of Christ. They were called to look at the enablement that came to us through the suffering of Christ. The example that he gave us through his suffering and the enablement that he brought to us because of his suffering, both Peter portrays before us and he says, look at that. And seeing this true grace stand firm in it. And in our passage today, Peter would bring his exhortations to a conclusion by making a final appeal to them to stand firm. And this is the same appeal that I make to you this morning. I want you, cross-culture church, to stand firm with expectant hope and godly fear. I want you to stand firm with expectant hope and godly fear. Peter gives us three ways in which we can do this through this passage. First, firstly, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of a caring God. How can you stand firm? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of a caring God, verses 5b to verse 7. The theme of humility, right? Peter begins in the latter half of verse 5, right? He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He spoke to them previously about relationships in the church, right? How the elders need to relate with the members and how the members need to relate with the elders. And he says that all this can happen only if there is humility that is practiced between both these parties. There should be an adorning of humility. Our natural inclination is pride. And so to overcome that, we need to adorn ourselves with humility. This is the attire that should be common across members and elders in the church. And the reason Peter gives that we should be doing it is because God looks with favor towards those who are humble. And in stark contrast, he opposes the proud. But then our humbling of ourselves, is it just toward one another? Elders towards the members, members towards the elders, members towards one another. Is it just this? No, it's not. First and foremost, our humbling of ourselves is toward God. And that's why he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The language that he's using is one that the, his audience would understand and relate. Because this phrase, the mighty hand of God, immediately rings a bell to what God has spoken and what God has done in the Exodus. The acts that were done by God in the deliverance of his people from Egypt were done how? Through the mighty hand of God. You see this refrain throughout Exodus. You see it in Deuteronomy. Whenever there's a recollection of what God did, it was through the mighty hand of God. And it was not just the bringing them out of slavery. The mighty hand of God was just not to, did not just bring them out of slavery, but took them through perilous times in the wilderness where they were sojourners, and took them to that promised land, which he promised that he would take them to, where they, they will worship him. And Peter is using this phrase to tell his audience, you are in that similar state. You've been delivered from the clutches of sin, from the slavery to sin. And now as you travel through perilous times, as there are attacks and suffering that you go through, and as you make your way, your journey towards that home, eternal home, that glory that awaits, the only thing that can keep you and take you there is the mighty hand of God. Just like he did. Just like he fulfilled his promise to the people of Israel, he will fulfill his promise to us. And our response to this God and His authority is to humble ourselves before Him. The God who is mighty, who is over all. He has authority over angels, powers, authorities. 
anything that you can think of, any oppressor that you can think of, he's higher than that, he's more powerful than that. And our response to, to him and his authority is to humble ourselves before him. Peter gives us the purpose for this humbling of ourselves. Look at that in verse 6. He says, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Right now you might be going through suffering and it might seem like this is just unending. When is this going to end? When will all this end might be your common refrain. But then instead of questioning and instead of murmuring, the call for us is to just humble ourselves before the Lord. There is a time when, when suffering will end. There is a time when glory will appear. Remember what he has been saying? Suffering precedes glory. But what God hasn't told us is when this suffering will end and when His glory will appear. All He says is it will happen. But until then, what are we called to do? What should be the posture of our heart? It's that of humility, humbling ourselves under His mighty hand until He exalts us when He returns. But then you may ask, okay, so I agree that I'm, I'm supposed to humble myself, but what does this humbling of myself look like? Well, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us how we do that in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Suffering is a time when anxieties, it reigns and rules in our heart. Worry is the most common thing that you find during a time of suffering. But then look at what a humble heart would do with that anxiety. Peter says, it would cast it, those anxieties, on God. Not brood over your anxieties. Not think about a thousand possibilities of how things could go wrong and plan a way out of those. Not scheme, plan, manipulate on how to just somehow get rid of suffering, sometimes even through sinful means, and just do that. But listen to the call on what we are called to do with our anxieties. It's to cast it on Him. It's to take it to the Lord in prayer. And if you just think about this, worry and anxiety is a manifestation of pride that is deep-rooted in our lives. The reason we worry is because we just think way too high about ourselves. 
We think that we can go through any situation with the strength that we have, with the resources that we have, and we forget that we are but mere creatures incapable of doing anything without the help of a mighty God. Humbling ourselves can begin only when we know how small we are and how mighty He is. Humbling can only begin when we have a right estimation about ourselves, considering our own finiteness, considering our own sinfulness, and a right estimation of who God is considering His holiness. That He's set apart. He's distinct. And if we know in our estimation of how small and incapable we are and how big God is, we will cast all our anxieties on Him. We will rather run to Him with all our worries and cast it on Him. Notice with me, the reason Peter calls us to cast our anxieties on Him, on, on God, is given to us. He says, because He cares for you. He cares for us. This sovereign, all-powerful, mighty God is for us. Not only does He have the power to take care of you, but He also has the heart to take care of you. Many times, both of these don't go hand in hand. In the earthly examples that we see, a person in authority, a person with might, doesn't care much for the people under their care. But here we have a God who is mighty over all things and who is deeply concerned about our welfare, our lives, our souls. Did Jesus not say in Matthew chapter 6, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God cares for you way more than you think He does. His plans for you are good. Why do you doubt His goodness and care in your life? Why do you control your life and end up in anxious thoughts? Struggles with anxiety are so common today and it's becoming a buzzword. But when you look at the root of this, it's a sin. A sin of pride and control of our lives. It is that which leads to anxiety. And the command and the instruction and command for a blood-bought child of God is not to be anxious, but to cast your cares into the mighty hand of a caring God. Would you do that this morning? With all your fears, whatever that fear might be. Whether it's the fear of opposition, when you go and share the gospel with someone, whether it's the fear of being ridiculed by friends, when you take a stand for the Lord and not give in to the sinful things that they do, whether it's fear of being slandered by even a person close to you, when you've made up your mind to show pure conduct and all that you receive back is slander, Is it the fear of your future? What's going to happen tomorrow? Or is it the fear of your children's future? Will they be successful? Notice all these fears, when they are not rightly handled, it would lead us into sin. It would lead us to disobey God and His commands to us. And at the heart of it, what you see in these fears is a distrust of God's care for your life. So cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Take all of your fears and your anxieties and take it to Him in prayer. Go before the Lord. Cry out before Him, knowing fully well Assuring your heart that He hears us. He knows every tear that we shed. And He has promised to help you. He has promised to see you through. He has promised that His mighty hand is on your side. Prayerlessness, it shows our pridefulness. 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of a caring God. How can we stand firm in the true grace of God? Number one, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of a caring God. Number two, resist the evil schemes of a roaring lion. Verses 8 and 9. In stark contrast to God's care for us and His interest in our lives, there is an adversary, an enemy, who is not interested in our welfare. In fact, in fact, he intends and he schemes evil for us. And Peter says, he's not a quiet enemy. He's a roaring lion. He's out to attack and devour. His agenda is to destroy you. And the command for us toward Him is be sober-minded and be watchful. See, sober-minded could also be translated here as self-control. Be vigilant. Be clear in your thinking. Know who is on your side. Know who isn't on your side. God is on your side. He cares for you. His mighty hand is with you. On the other side, there is a devil who is out to attack you. See the stark difference and know and be clear in your mind. The God who is on your side, His ears are open to your prayers. His grace and His care, it extends to you not just now, but from eternity past to eternity future. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He sent His only Son to die for your sin and to purchase you from that sinful ways, the futile ways that you were following. And He's given you His Spirit to guide, guard, lead you. And He's taking you through this time of exile to that promised land and promises to give you an eternal inheritance. On the contrary, the devil is out to snatch us out from that place of security. He is out to separate us from God and to destroy our souls. This is what he's been doing from the beginning, right from the Garden of Eden, and that is what he will continue to do even today. And he will continue to do it until the Lord deals with him once and for all. But until then, our response to him and his schemes is to be watchful. Some people just make too much of the devil. That's wrong. But many of us make too little of him as if he doesn't exist. And that is wrong too. Scripture puts the devil in a particular place and we need to know that place. 
He doesn't have authority over God, but he can't, and he can't do anything to, to the child of God unless God allows it. But at the same time, we can't ignore him. We can't brush him aside because we have enough warnings to be vigilant against the flaming darts of the wicked one. The imagery that Peter uses to describe him here is that of a lion. And the picture of a lion for us is, might be very different from the picture that, of a lion that the audience of Peter would have had. The lions that we see are on TV or probably in the zoo. But imagine for Peter's audience, they would have been in those arenas where people would have been thrown to the lions and the lions would devour people. They would have seen that gory acts of lions devouring human beings. That's the picture that Peter is portraying before his audience. And he's saying, the devil is like that. He is no nice guy. Notice the call that Peter gives us. First he says, be, be watchful, be vigilant. Verse 9, he says, resist him. These need active effort. This is not something that you do passively. If you're going to be passive and idle against him, this roaring lion is going to devour you. I grew up hearing this phrase time and again from my grandmother. She kept saying, an idle man's mind is a devil's workshop. And that's so true. You entertain idleness in your life and this is the place where the devil dines. This is his workshop where he comes up and schemes with ideas to destroy us. The call is resist him. How do you resist him? Peter says, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. This is how you resist him. You stand firm in the faith that you have. You may ask, okay, how can I be firm? It first begins by knowing God, knowing him through his word. This is how you fight against the devil. Recall, the, the only weapon of offense in the armor of God is his word, the sword, which is the word of God. Recall how Jesus fought his temptations. It was through the word of God. And so first, what you do to stand firm in your faith is to feed on God's word. Nourish your soul with his word. Secondly, practice this word with the community of God's people. Live it out. That's how you grow. And your faith is firmed up. This lion can roar all he wants. And he does roar. He roars through the slandering of people. The slandering of people who are opposed to the gospel. 
He roars through the many temptations that He brings us so that we can be pulled out. He roars through the lies that He speaks to us. He roars and He causes us to despair, to fear. And this fear of slander, opposition, and suffering, it causes us to isolate ourselves and think, I don't need God. I don't need His people. I can be on my own. And it's out there in that isolated place, secluded place, that He's out to devour your soul. It's not an accident, dear friends, that the people who stand firm amidst afflictions are the people who constantly feed on God's word and the people who are constantly found in the fellowship of the saints and belong in this community of God's people. On the contrary, the ones who fall away are those who deprive themselves of God's word and who distance themselves from this community. Beware. Do not distance yourself from God and His word. Do not distance yourselves from God's people who walk with you. But stand firm in the faith. Let your faith be built up so that you can resist the evil schemes of a roaring and devouring lion. End of verse 9, Peter says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter reminds them, you're not alone in this. All of God's people are going through similar struggles. They are going through trials and sufferings. And sometimes we take pride even in our suffering. This is so subtle, but yet it can be so destructive to our souls if we are not vigilant. One of the, the common roar of the devil is to make us think that our suffering is so unique. It is so unique that only we go through these sufferings. He just thrives through feeding our self-pity through these thoughts. We think, Oh, my suffering is so unique. No one goes through the stuff that I go through. Oh, my spouse is so difficult. You don't understand what I go through. My boss or colleague is so oppressive. I don't think anyone would be like him and I don't think anyone will have to go through that stuff that I go through. And so many times, the way we speak, it reveals our heart condition. 
It reveals our pride. Many times that we portray our suffering, it shows the pride that is deep-rooted in our hearts. And Peter says, resist the devil. You resist the devil is by realizing the simple truth that your suffering is not unique. We live in a fallen world. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is common. This is the norm. The details of your suffering might be unique, no doubt. But in essence, it is the same across the world for God's people. In fact, if we must compare the gravity of our suffering with those around, ours just pales in comparison to the suffering that other brothers and sisters in the world who go through severe persecution for their faith, who are being martyred for their faith, are going through. And we think our suffering is just way up high. Do not listen to that roar of the lion, the devouring lion, and think and take pride in your suffering. Don't give in to the devil's schemes and make much of your suffering. When thoughts overwhelm you, don't, instead of building castles in the air of how great your suffering is and wallowing in self-pity, run to the one who has asked you to cast all your cares on him. Take it to him in prayer, humbling yourself. Realize that there's nothing that you can do about it. There isn't any resources that you have to fight this in your own strength. But you have all the resources that you need to fight it with his strength, God's strength. And let this truth be a comfort to you and cause you to resist the devil. And friends, realize that the suffering, whatever suffering you're going through, realize that this is not going to be for long. This is not going to be forever. That leads us to our last point. How do you stand firm? You stand firm by humbling yourself before God, by resisting the devil. Thirdly, you trust the sure promises of a gracious God. Verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This suffering is for a little while. It might seem unending, but Peter is clear that it is for a little while. And this little while is in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits us. Paul, he says it better in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What we can see today, what is there right and center is our suffering. But the call for us is to shift our gaze from that light and momentary affliction to the eternal glory that awaits us. Look to the promises of God. Look to, the, look to what is unseen. To set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Peter has already labored in telling them, don't fix your eyes on the suffering, but rather fix your eyes on that eternal reward that awaits you, that inheritance that awaits you, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, unfading. He said that throughout the letter. And now for one final time, he reminds them again. And he says, the God of all grace. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. He says, the God who has given us grace from beginning to end. God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. All these promises that we have have been made possible through Christ. It's only possible through Christ and what he has done on the cross. If not for Christ, we have nothing. But it is through his atoning work that we've been brought near. It is through his atoning work that we've been enabled. It is through his exemplary life we have a perfect example to look to and to run behind. And it is through him that we have this eternal reward. And notice what he says, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore all the wrongs that you can think of, all the wrongs that have been done to you will be made right. He will confirm on that day when Christ arrives, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that all your striving through suffering was worth it, was totally worth it. Will strengthen you. Your weary hearts receiving attack after attack will be strengthened by him and he will establish you. He will take you to your final abode and he will be with you forever. Here, 
We're just exiles, remember? We're just sojourning. There is no idea of settling down here. But there is a time when you will be established. There is a time when you will rest for all eternity. That's the promise. What a glorious hope we have. Can we not trust in this? Instead of growing in distrust and saying, I want relief now. I want this pain to end now. And if it doesn't, I will do whatever I want. Instead of becoming bitter and grumpy against God, can we shift our gaze from our trial to His promises? Can we fix our gaze on the promises that He's given to us and rest in them? Peter says, He will do it. His promises are sure and on that we can stand. He who promised is faithful. And even as Peter says this, he just erupts in praise for what God has promised. Verse 11, he says, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter concludes this letter with some final greetings. Verse 13, he greets the people whom he writes to, but even here, he's just woozing with the themes that he's already spoken about through the letter. He's been laboring and teaching to them. and says in verse 13, she, referring to the church, she who is at Babylon, because this is where Babylon was the, is where the people of God, Israel, were exiled to. And they were the superpower at that time. And at the time of Peter's writing, the superpower was Rome. And so Babylon was just another way of, of calling Rome. And so he's referring, as he says, she who is at Babylon, he's saying the church that is at Rome, who is likewise chosen. Just like Peter's audience, the church that Peter is part of is also chosen by God. He began this letter by reminding them what? By reminding them that they were chosen exiles. And he's concluding this letter by saying, hey, there's a brotherhood. Even those who are with me who are chosen exiles and we are all on this same journey. They all send greetings, so does Mark, my son. And he ends in verse 14 by saying, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. God's peace is what they needed in their time of suffering. What they needed most in their time of affliction is the peace of God. And he prays for them on their behalf. Let me conclude Suffering that we go through as believers for the sake of the gospel, it's a given. It's a gift that God gives to His children. 
It's a gift that God gives to test our faith. And suffering will either drive you into the arms of God or it will sever you from the arms of God. And how we respond to suffering, it shows where we are heading. Peter has made it crystal clear that it is those who stand firm, those who persevere through God's help, and they have immense help. It is they who will make it till the end. They have a reward which they can't even fathom that, that is awaiting them. It's going to be glorious is what Peter says. But those who do not persevere, those who make light of his commands and despise the grace of God through disobedient, through rebellious and sinful living, the judgment is severe. And we can't even fathom the eternal judgment that awaits them. And through His grace, we, His people, have been warned. We, His people, have been exhorted to persevere. And so, as Peter makes this appeal, may we listen to this call. May we heed to humble ourselves before the mighty hand, under the mighty hand of God. Introspect your own lives, your thoughts and your actions. Ask a brother or sister, if you will, this difficult question. Am I being prideful? It takes a lot of humility to ask that, even that question. If you see someone acting in pride, don't shy away from telling them. But as you do it, guard your own heart from pride. Humble yourself. Resist the devil and his schemes. Be vigilant. And trust in the eternal promises of God. And when you do all these faithfully, you can be sure that you're heading towards that eternal glory that he has promised. And as you do that, you can rejoice right now in your suffering because your eyes are fixed on that eternal glory. May God help us to do that.